Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, brought to you by the Ruminations Radio Network and sponsored by Film Obsessive. This is the tirade film movie debate, hosted by two film critics, cool dads and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And you can make my day. William Johnson. Uh, that? You know, that this time, we've tried this like three takes, folks. Yeah, I messed that up. But you know what? This is the fourth take, so fuck it. No, that sounds like, <laughs> that's like Wolverine pretending to be Clint Eastwood. I love it. That'll work. We'll play with that. Um, Clint Eastwood, oh, I don't think it's ever been in a movie with Hugh Jackman, but that's not a problem for this podcast. Kind of. We'll find out. But ladies and gentlemen, um, if you can't tell from where Will's going here, we're damn glad to have you. We're going to talk about one of our great filmmakers and actors of our time this is all for tantrum's sake we're shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate no matter what we encourage you all to love what you love but for now the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on uh this week we're doing one part of two where we're going to do one of our deep cut series is looking at the filmography of an actor or director and in this case the actor and the director are the same person we're going to take an episode and talk about clint eastwood as the director we're going to take a look at clint eastwood as an actor um and for this episode we're going to go director um, and kind of the, the journey that gets us here is yours, Will. So you've been doing the deep dive. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, well, first, uh, I want you guys to follow along. I, I uh, go to my letterbox and you'll see that I uh, have put together a complete Eastwood as director. Uh, as we know, uh, letterbox is great for many things. But one of the things is it gives credit for directors and actors for like everything. I mean, there'll be some actors that have 900 credits on there and it'll be because they made a one second appearance on a documentary or something. And I, I try to tend to go through that and, and pick things out that don't belong. And for the purposes of today's breakdown of deep dives, uh, my list includes the 40 films, uh, feature length films that Clint Eastwood has directed 39 of which are credited to him. One of which is not, but that's a long story. We won't get into it, but for the purposes of, looking into the filmography and also going on my own uh deep dive blind spot kind of thing uh, i use that list that i made in chronological order so 40 films which is pretty prolific especially for an actor who's actor director who's been acting since the 50s and directing since the 70s so and still putting out output um you know uh he had a film on hbo max uh, with warner brothers not too long ago uh, called cry macho so he's still putting out work in his 90s so a lot of stuff to go through, and as would befit, you know, someone who has forty films as a director, you're going to miss some. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of, and like I said, I don't want to be like a morbid person, but I think sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until someone passes. Clint Eastwood is very much still alive, though. If you watched Cry Macho, you were worried about him disintegrating on the screen. He's so old and frail now. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I figured, you know what, I, I kind of want to appreciate him while he's still here and just kind of soak in some of the work that I've missed from him because I've always enjoyed him as a director. Some of my favorite films of his, you know, some of his big ones, um, like Million Dollar Baby, Letters from Iwo Jima, Unforgiven, things like that. A lot of those are, of course, in my top 100 or many people's top 100 and and I figured, you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to, at the essence of deep dive is to go into these things that I might have missed and uh, dig into them. And as of recording, uh, of the 40 films he has directed, I've seen 36. So I've, mm. I've, I've, I've managed to close the gap. <laughs> I've seen, uh, there's about four left um, that I need to see. And uh, 
I think three of them, well, two of them are very early in his directorial career that just, they're just not easy to um, find. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one film is called Breezy. The other called is The Iger Sanction. Um, I have not seen Firefox uh, and I have not seen one of his later director only outputs with Matt Damon called Hereafter. Those are the four yeah. I have not seen. Uh, but that being said, I think I have a pretty solid grasp of his filmography throughout all the decades. And I've thought, you know what? Um, at least for the deep dive portion, let's not talk about, you know, the big stuff. Cause I could, I mean, you know, a million dollar babies in my top hundred letters from Hiroshima is in my top hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to really do a deep dive. Like let's look into the films that maybe people haven't even heard of or sure. forgot about, or they just don't get talked enough, you know, because, you know, five decades or six decades of filmmaking that's a lot of stuff and you can miss Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff and he's had so many different eras you know where he was you know for a while he was the action director and then he was kind of the uh low budget art film director and then he had a prestige period and then you know he just kind of went through all these phases so it's very easy to, to forget some of the stuff that he did no, I'm with you. Um, I love the notion of what you're talking about of uh, let's you know celebrate him while he's still here. You know, I don't know how many films he's got left. Something tells me he's the guy that's going to work until months before his passing. Someone will take whatever film he was working on when he does pass and finish it. It'll be mm-hmm. that kind of situation. And it's uh, and I know he gets maligned lately for his age and and for you know just his background to kind of be the red state the the politics of Clint Eastwood have gotten in the way of the legacy of Clint Eastwood too often at least in our clickbait culture that we've got now and and I'm one of those folks and you know this from the show and all that I'm not much of a a side chooser and a cancel kind of guy where I don't care what Clint Eastwood does make make good movies and I'm there Clint and that's that's enough for me I can bury the rest of it yeah and that 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 brings up its own thing because I Mm -hmm. think Clint the artist is is very or Clint the the art that he produces is very different from maybe the artist himself. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. stuff we're not going to get into. I mean, he's had a lot of, um, I mean, people make fun of Nick Cannon for having a lot of kids. I think Clint Eastwood has like 11 children from like this five or true. six different women. He's got a lot of different marriages. He's got some interesting, I'm not going to say interesting politics because his kind of conservatism is mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> like a, old-fashioned now these days yeah and also and also it it and we'll talk about this when we do the acting too is that i think that when you're around for so long you kind of become the stereotypes of what you put on the screen uh, in terms of the popular stuff and i think Mm -hmm. despite the conservative leanings and some of the picks that i'm going to pick here today for director uh clint eastwood was a a remarkably progressive filmmaker in terms of Mm -hmm. um, showing people worlds that uh, are filled with uh, minorities and the underseen and the, um, and the victims and the unappreciated. It's, it's very, uh, he, for, for all that he gets for being this masculine uh, conservative hero, he's, I mean, some of the stuff I think that he does would make, modern day conservative sh- uh, shiver i completely you know? agree with you there yeah and um and what i really appreciate about the guy as we at least start leaning our list in a minute here is uh just um i feel like he's become um an actor's director you know you, you never hear a bad story from the set from the guy he's one of those directors who knows what he wants he gets there he shoots things in like 
two, three takes. You hear the stories of like Matt Damon will tell you a story like, hey, did you want me to do that again? He's like, no, I got it. You know, let's go. He's a very uh -huh. quick, very efficient guy. For a while there, he was like Woody Allen. You make a film a year. And I think actors like that. Actors like the gentle touch. Actors like the organization, what he brings. And the, the, the I don't know, the, just the, um, the efficiency of vision is something that Clint seems to always have. You never hear about a an onset disaster or a bloated production compared to somebody like, like we've, we've dogged him on this show and I'm going to keep dogging him compared to like Martin Scorsese. You never hear about a sure. film of his that goes off the rails because of either diva behavior uh, from an actor, diva behavior from a filmmaker or just budget or this or that. Like well, most of the thing, most of the time Clint delivers extremely tidy, well done things in record time. Well, and the thing about that too, is I think that there's, a couple of different like factors into being a quote unquote famous director or a beloved director. Mm -hmm. um, another director I think of that's, I would say in Clint Eastwood's league in terms of how they make films. And I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but is someone like Wes Craven, someone who is not necessarily a dynamically visual director. Clint Eastwood is not known for visual dynamism. He's not like, flashy he's not like he is a lot of the times a not i'm, I'm, I'm saying this in general a, a very right. a very like put the camera down and let the characters do the talking and the acting mm -hmm. and the you know and that's and that's fine and i think a lot of people will discredit people like wes craven or clint eastwood or some others because they aren't visually dynamic like say a martin scorsese but sure the benefit of having someone who is efficient and no nonsense and has that um vision of telling a story a certain way there's power in that too i mean i'm hardly ever drawn to a clint eastwood film because of the visuals there's definitely directors out there mm -hmm. even directors that i don't even like like christopher nolan i can at least be like okay i admire these visuals that are here um i never go to a clint eastwood film for that i go to that for the characters because uh, yeah. he is a fantastic like you said he's he's an acting uh director and because of that i think sometimes actors give some of the best performances yeah. including himself which we'll talk about oh, in sure. another episode but um yeah, yeah i looked I, up I, I, yeah i looked up the oscar stats where he's had in his films at least since unforgiven um his films have produced 11 academy award nominations for acting and mm -hmm. five of them have won. So mm -hmm. you're betting five out of 11, you're doing pretty darn good uh, in terms of being an actor's director. Yeah. And even if it's a film that doesn't wow you overall, you know, like mm -hmm. a, a perfect example of this would be Changeling. I think Changeling is a perfectly yeah. fine film. Mm -hmm. um, but Angelina Jolie is fantastic in it. And right. she elevates it more, you know, than. Um, than the material that's presented there. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I fully agree with that statement. It's like uh, sometimes you just get these great, and this happens every year at the Oscars too. I mean, there's always a, a film that's maybe not well received, but the acting is, you know, yeah. uh, gets all the attention. And that, that comes from the director. I mean, when you see the people that did win uh, specifically Hillary Swank for million dollar baby, I mean, she, mm -hmm looked like she was worshiping at the altar of Clint. She was like, thank you, Clint, oh, for this yeah. role. Thank you for what you did for me. 
you know, and this is, that was a woman who had already won an Oscar at that point. Right. You know, and she was looking like she was renewed and had a new lease on life as an actor because of Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and that is, yeah, that is the case with those other wins too, you know, like Swank had won an Oscar, but then the other winners under his charge were Morgan Freeman, his first right there next to Swank, Sean Penn, his first in Mystic River. He'd go on and get another one for Milk. Um, mm-hmm. Tim Robbins never got a whiff at any kind of role like that wins for Mr. River as well. And then Gene Hackman, you can easily say revitalized his mid nineties career, had a second swoon post unforgiven yep. where he became the nineties, you know, middle-aged, you know, post, he wasn't Lex Luthor anymore. He got to do Crimson Tide and a thousand things in the nineties where yeah, revitalized his career. So yeah, the guy, the guy gives gifts in his films and Bo wraps him up. Hey, before we start our five, let me kind of take a quick pause here to do the midway read. That way, that's out of the way. We can just do our list. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, hang tight and please enjoy this short announcement from the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, folks, welcome back. Yeah, um, five, huh? As a director? Okay, you. Um, I I tell you what, I'll go first so that you got the finale spot. Does that sound good? Oh yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, my first one is one of the ones you haven't seen. I really do admire his work in Hereafter. Um, mm. I don't normally. Um, Matt Damon is is can, can be hit or miss, and I know it's a uh, the film itself has been kind of. I I think it's one of those forgotten ones. Um, I know he's. He had that prestige period in the 90s and aughts that obviously turned into Million Dollar Baby and Mystic River. And then hereafter kind of comes in and just kind of just kind of floats in place. But um, the depiction and use of the the Sri Lankan Indian Ocean tsunami um, is just a really interesting angle to kind of add in what Damon's trying to do as a medium. I don't know if that's the right kind of part for Damon, but I Mm -hmm. super duper admire the tone, the introspection, the kind of examination of what that movie is and the effort. Um, there's this one scene that, that's just freaking brilliant. And it, it feels like it's from a different movie, but I love it because it's in this movie. Um, Matt Damon is kind of semi-romancing Bryce Dallas Howard. And they go to like um, on a date, they go to like, or they meet, I don't know if they're really on a date, but they're, I think they're trying to date, but um, they end up going to a cooking class and they're making some pasta dish or whatever. And Clint, kind of stays with them on a medium shot and like hangs around for, I don't want to say like a Scorsese kind of long take, but he's there a super long time and just lets Damon and Howard just act and kind of fiddle with the food, do their thing, you know, not obviously not kind of go off the script as so course so much like the recipe, but like it's this gorgeously charming, super brilliant scene that I, that you don't normally see in an Eastwood movie and you definitely don't expect to see in a movie about, death and reflection and maybe you know ghosts and mediums and all that so uh, i yeah it's i don't know why that that scene sticks out to me but uh 
when people ask, you know, hey, what's a romantic scene in, in a movie that isn't romantic? I, I don't know. I, I queue up this YouTube clip and I send it to him and I'm like, gosh, could we ever get Matt Damon to do more of that? Could we ever get Bryce Dallas Howard to do more of that? It's like, mm. again, random moment in a strange movie. But um, in terms of total package, um, I like that kind of introspection. You saw me with my top 100 for our for our 100th episode. I'm a ghost guy. I enjoy the Patrick Swayze, the Demi Moore. I like that idea that not being the most religiously sound person in the world that I hope there is a hereafter, like go ahead and haunt me. Cause then I know I'm, there's something after death. Mm. So I I'm, I'm into those themes and to see Eastwood, you know, put his little piano score to it like he does and, and mm -hmm. to kind of put some drama to something, but also put some character to something. It's a nice part. I don't know if it's the right part for Matt Damon, but, um, but it's a nice mm. effort. I, I, I applaud it. Interesting. Well, if you like ghosts, then you're going to really love my first pick. Now, these are not ranked or anything. This is just. Yeah, I'm just spitballing you know, too. Yeah. But, um, okay, I'm going to go. Now, you cannot talk about Clint Eastwood without talking about Westerns. I mean, that's just part of his iconography is the Western. Now, he's directed a number of Westerns. I mean, obviously, Unforgiven, probably the most successful in terms of uh, at least. Um, you know, critical success and, and awards and such. But, you know, he's directed High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wales. Um, but the one that I choose of those is Pale Rider because Pale Rider 1985 uh, that he uh, starred and directed in. Now, High Plains Drifter was the second film he ever directed. And I think if he had waited until about the time he directed Pale Rider, High Plains Drifter would be probably my choice because it's a little bit more uh and the reason why is because high plains drifter is about a ghost essentially um it's about someone who was wronged who comes to this town to punish them um and uh you know it's 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 not outright stated he's a ghost but it's heavily implied that this is a revenge-seeking ghost mm -hmm. pale rider is almost the same story but it's it's uh it offers a different take instead of it being about revenge it's about saving those who cannot take care of themselves so it's almost like ah, a superhero yeah. ghost um pale rider is essentially about um clint eastwood is this mysterious preacher that's his name preacher who comes into this mining town that is being bullied by you know the big mining company that that's trying to get whatever little space, you know, claims that Michael Moriarty's crew has, you know, they're getting bullied. So, you know, a preacher comes in there and takes care of business. Um, and it's when you buy into that concept that it is a ghost story and it is someone at one point, Clint Eastwood takes his shirt off and you can see that there are six or seven bullet scars in his back, you know, in areas that he would not survive from. Mm. Um, you get you get this idea that he is truly like this specter of justice. So it's it's revenge in a way because he does end up meeting up with the people that killed him. Uh, but it's just a sweet tale of coming in, uh, saving a town, uniting people together. Um, and it's got all the Western elements that make it very much Eastwood, but has that extra. I don't know. It just has a little extra to it because of. The fact that he's kind of this angel character. Plus, even though I just said something about the visual dynamism of a Clint Eastwood film not generally being like, you know, uh, something that you look for, the setting of like, um, I, it's it's not your typical Western setting either. It's kind of up in the mountains. 
I don't mm-hmm. know where Colorado, maybe Washington, Oregon, something like that. It's it's very it's a lot of snow, uh, a lot of green, a lot of more forest um, kind of Western setting. And so it's very different than, you know, the desert stuff and right. you know, the old Western town and stuff. So it just it has a lot going for it. And I highly recommend that one. I think that will be a lot of people quote, you know, outlaw Josie Wales as his best Western. But I, I would fight for Pale Rider as my favorite Western that he directed. Nice. Nice pick. Um, on my director's list, I tried to stay away from the Western, so I'm glad you put one in there. Um, next one for me, I'm going, um, I'm going fluff just for a second little, you know, palate cleanser from going to Western. Otherwise, um, I'm picking Space Cowboys. Mm, um, hell yeah, it, it's just fun. You know, I know that it's, it's a dad and a granddad movie, even though we don't on this show we don't <laughs> do dad movies and granddad movies. But no, um, I wish there was a movie like this in theaters right now, like just something, just something easy, fun, comedic knows exactly what it is. Isn't trying to swing for too many superhuman superhero fences. Just have good actors who know their archetypes come in and just, and just show people what they can do, have great chemistry together. Um, The combination of, of Eastwood and Jones as rivals then and now, uh, is fantastic and um oh yeah tommy exactly. lee jones is a is a perfect red ass compliment to what clint eastwood is is always a red ass and james garner floats it perfectly right in the middle to kind of help them out uh you know donald sutherland maybe is a little undercooked where he could be you know he's a quirkster and he you know loses the dentures and differences like it, it works for what they're doing um you know if there was a i know you revile this movie in a way where uh ghostbusters afterlife if you're gonna bring four old people back to play old people do space cowboys and not ghostbusters afterlife just come in and have you know have a good time of easy people and don't try to just nod wink and joke give them characters give them stakes give them some things to do and space cowboys Cowboys. yeah i love space cowboys and i think it's actually i mean every hollywood movie is is going to be a little bit exaggerated but not actually a unrealistic premise it's not something like Let's teach, oil, yeah. let's teach oil drillers to be astronauts like this oh, is yeah. you know let's get these guys up here they're the only ones who know how to read this mm-hmm. old you know code it, it kind of makes sense in a way i mean i'm sure yeah. if you're the most brilliant astronauts in the world brilliant scientists you could probably find a way to read an old technology but that's not the point it's it's mm-hmm. more that it's it seems more feasible and once again it's not about all these cowboys in space having an adventure it's about those characters and their relationships and and how they react to one another and it's just great it's i've my my old email address back in the day was unforgiven space cowboy that was my email address back when that came out so yeah uh, totally agree with you on space cowboys there cool yeah awesome uh my next pick uh this is uh we're going to the beginning of the 80s for all right uh him and and actually the 80s is probably the majority of my picks for these because i think that was his most creative output in terms of challenging his status quo but uh in 1980 um he came out with a film called bronco billy have you heard of this one i've heard of it but i've never seen it so i'm gonna dive in and put my like sound like a child listening to a good storyteller right here (laughs) well i'm gonna read you a quote from clint eastwood about this film i got this from that clint book i was talking about but it says here Mm -hmm. quote There was something so beautifully naive about it all. A guy who's a shoe salesman in New Jersey goes out and has this dream of becoming a modern day Tom Mix or something like that. He had great virtues, though obviously his brain had snapped and he had gone into another era. 
Um, I love that quote. I actually read that quote before I watched the movie uh, nice. because um, Bronco Billy is essentially about this guy named Bronco Billy. And he is, even though it's the 80s or the late 70s when they filmed it, he kind of has this 40s, 50s, big top Western sideshow that he travels all around the country for that virtually no one sees. But he's living this life he's he's like i said his brain has snapped he's he kind of thinks he is this heroic you know uh cowboy entertainer figure figure like a will rogers or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and he just travels the country putting on something that he really loves and he's loyal to his his crew of performers who are all probably not really good at it um and it's the the kind of the the crux of the story is that sandra Locke at the time uh one of his muses Uh and and wives uh, one of his wives uh uh is like this super super rich stuck up heiress and she is escaping this marriage she didn't want to get into and she stumbles upon this crew ends up becoming part of the act and of course falling in love and just it's kind of that uh upstairs downstairs kind of thing where you've got this hoity-toity rich girl is slumming it with the for lack of a better word carnies really um, and it's just delightful and funny and whimsical and, uh, and, and a little bit like a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, uh, that he directs, uh, sad too. Cause it's like, it's these kind of lost people, you know, that are just clinging on to some kind of, um, well dream. I mean, I read in this book, it's, it's about the American dream really. Like maybe someday someone will totally buy into this Western sideshow that no one's ever yeah. going to watch. So it's, it's just a great, really fun, really fun early, not early, but, you know, early 80s Eastwood. This is pre, you know, prestige stuff, but mm-hmm. him really interacting with clever off the wall stories that I don't think a lot of people were expecting from him. So I'd highly recommend yeah. Bronco Billy. Okay. Okay. Since you're talking about lovers and, and kind of the softer side, I'll go there as well Where uh, with the next pick. Uh, it's in my top 100. Uh, I'm a softie and I love it. And it's more from the 90s prestige time, but The Bridges of Madison County mm, do- yes. does it for me just fine. Um, I just really appreciate what you kind of said about lost people. And you've got two right there who are easily in the main characters in different places of their lives. Um, and I, I, at the time, I mean, and even since I, I still feel like Eastwood is terrifically too old to play the part that he plays opposite Meryl Streep because Meryl Streep looks great. Um, but um, but I appreciate what Eastwood did with that role and being able to kind of like just show a nice romantic lead. I mean, I know he has his romances in his places and all that. And and a lot of times they may feel forced, but by staying with the source material, which was a super a successful novel of its day. I mean, that thing was on so many charts for so long. It was nuts that that was an event movie out of somebody like Eastwood. Um, but no, everything really fell into place. You know, they, they shot it right there in Iowa. Um, you got Lenny Niehaus doing the score as he so wonderfully does in so many Eastwood films. You got Streep mm-hmm. with an Oscar nominated performance. Um, same thing. You've got, you know, um, a generation and an arc of, dreams and sadness and where you know where this italian world war ii you know refugee wife wishes she could be stuck in iowa versus you know the the cool guy you know national geographic photographer who gets to live out of a live out of a truck if he wants to and Mm -hmm. just where where those two could find kinship and obviously then love and just i yeah it's a movie i super duper really appreciate the endings of of, oh the endings a nice tissue box banger 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Him oh, standing the, in the rain and uh, oh, her almost yeah. grabbing the handle on the truck, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, okay, I can go out or I can yeah. stay. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I will say about Bridges is it continues a trend that I've noticed even before okay. I went on this deep dive, that Clint Eastwood is really bad at casting children or young actors. Um, mm. What's a lot of example? His, a lot of his movies are plagued by having just awful kid actors in it. Um, And this is one of the cases where uh, I don't know, I think maybe he was hiring like friends of his (laughs) friends of the producers or something. No, but I mean, just thinking of it, I mean, um, Kyle Eastwood's okay in, in in Mm -hmm. a couple of movies. um, But I mean, I think the only one that's coming to my head immediately is 15, 17 to Paris, where you're kind of subjected to 35 minutes of like these terrible, like yeah. 10 year old actors uh-huh. he, he he just has a i mean it's just something that i've noticed through all his films but bridges is a great movie and uh um yeah yeah i've, I, been, I, to, I, I've been to those bridges in iowa and it's oh yeah, wow it's, it's something it's it's pretty yeah it's fantastic. i get it yeah yeah love to hear it um all right i'm gonna go with my third pick and actually i watched this for the first time last night prior to the recording um but it had been recommended to me a lot by a lot of people and i think this isn't the first film Eastwood directed, obviously, um, uh, by you know without starring in it, but uh, it's with uh, Forrest Whitaker. It's called Bird, about Charlie Parker, the jazz musician. Um, have you heard of this one? I have, and Forrest, yeah, and uh, the soundtrack, and Forrest's participation. Partici- I feel like this was the launching pad for him that gave him a little bit of that '80s sizzle to, like, you know, Good Morning Vietnam, and, and show up in a few more places and get a few more roles. Yeah, it was definitely a big thing. I think it was expected to be another one of those prestige films. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe one of the first for him, really. Yeah, but it came out like after. Yeah, so like we're years after. When did um when did Diana Ross play Billie Holiday? Like in the like late seventies or the eighties? You know, the the Something music like I, uh, cabaret had already been done. All, you know, like it was kind of late to the music biopic wave that was there before it. No, yeah, this was 1988, um, and this was, I'm trying to think, I'm looking through the filmography in chronological order. I mean, there wasn't really anything that he kind of directed at that point that was like a big scale, you know, right. take me seriously kind of movie. This was kind of the first one, and it's actually probably the most, I don't know how to describe it. It's okay. the most un-Eastwood Eastwood film. Uh, and I, I, and I say that. that because it is very, um, does a lot of stuff visually that he never does. Uh, lots of zoom-ins and, and like people will be reflecting on things. So there'll be like these overlapping images of like someone, mm-hmm. um, you know, like thinking about something and then they're, they're seeing the the scene play out like on the screen while they're thinking about it. And, it all it's also told in non-chronological order almost to the point of utmost confusion where you're not even mm. sure what's going on and when yeah that's so it's a, a very it's a very ambitious uh directorial effort and one that is, is very unique like if 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 you fired this one up amongst you know all the other eastwood films you would have no idea this was an eastwood film at all and uh and it's also very uh matter of fact uh charlie parker was one of uh, Eastwood's heroes growing up, but he makes no attempts to, uh, you know, tell, you know, show, show the audience that, 
basically he he's letting the character do the talking. So if you're disgusted with his uh, immense drug habits and unreliability, then you are disgusted. If you're mm-hmm. amazed at his uh, virtuoso performances on the saxophone, you're amazed. But yeah. it's it's never leaning you in one direction or the other. It's just a very I wouldn't say straightforward biopic because, sure. like I said, it's it's told in such a uh, crazy way. But it's it, it's nice to see someone who loves jazz and loves a person not sensationalize them and just tell you the story and let you decide mm-hmm. what you think of the person. So, yeah, we, so, uh, a good pick, very good pick, very good pick. Um, I think he did that with American Sniper as well. I think that oh, he, took, he took, also he, took the he words out of my of, mouth about my next pick here. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, let you let you talk about it then. Go ahead. No. Uh, for, for me, I think the challenge is um, with American Sniper is um, that, it, yeah, again, a biography. Um, I'm trying to uh, – now, he found a wheelhouse to kind of do some biographies in his time or at least things that had biographical notes to him between Changeling and Invictus. And, you know, he was kind of building to this. And um, for me with American Sniper and why I put it on the list, I know it's a big one. I know it's a recent one. But um, I had never seen Clint Eastwood do something con- conceptually this big, you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, Space Cowboys is a, you know, a, a space movie and a bit of an adventure movie, but nothing. It, it's still I bet that thing still costs forty five million dollars. But um, but American Sniper, like you're you're kind of really you've got Bradley Cooper and you're kind of really going for it in obviously a controversial war and during a controversial time and with with his politics. But um, to kind of to your point with like he did with Bird, um, you've got him, you know, like you said, not necessarily straight, but just honest. Where hey, this is Chris Kyle. He, he can he's done some stuff. They soften, I think. Uh, you know the whole. I'm sure he's just a you know he's a sniper. He's a deadly killer. You know he's a, mm-hmm. probably a bit of a bro to do it. He's got the Punisher symbol on his chest, and that stuff's mm-hmm. been done. You know over overdone by you know followers of such for a very long time. But um, yep. but at the but at the core of that movie, obviously there's some there's nice. I, I nice is a hard word. It's too soft a word. But I mean there's just um there's just good virtue filled patriotism that I can appreciate there. I mean, would I ever be a Navy SEAL and do what he does? No. Would I ever fall, do the things he did in his life? No, but I can watch that story and super appreciate it. Thanks to even if it's embellishment from Clint, what were you going to say about American sniper? You were on a good roll and I stopped you. No, I, I was going to say that. And I, I had read American sniper and the book uh, before I saw the movie. I actually, this was one of the blind spots I saw on my recent journey this year. Mm-hmm. Um, was American Sniper. I'd never seen it. Um, but I had read the book. And uh, okay. the book is, is, is complex because you have um, Kyle, um, you know, saying things that, you know, you're kind of like, oh, man, that's a little rough, you know. Yeah. And uh, but but then, you know, he'll talk about how, you know, how great life is. But then his wife will like intercede and write a little note and be like that's not what it was like he was suffering greatly and mm-hmm. you can tell he's lying to himself and yeah they could have explored it a little bit more in american sniper like the kind of ptsd stuff but yeah i think for the most part they they don't necessarily like make you think one way or the other they, they, they don't say like this guy is clearly an american hero and he should never be judged at all and right. but it, it also will say like yeah he had some pretty messed up views you know, yeah. but he also went through some messed up stuff. It, it's a yeah. it's a complex character study. I think that, and 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 like he did with Bird, I think he doesn't sensationalize mm-hmm. or go out of his way to 
make one point or the other. I think a lot of people were, th- were thinking when American Sniper came out, they were like, oh, of course, it's Eastwood. It's going to be rah, 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 America. Yeah. Because that's what people. Killing yeah. brown people. And it doesn't right. do that. I admire that. That is yeah. not the case at all. And that's hardly ever the case, I think, in any film where you could, that he's directed where you could think, um, the Westerns included, where you think he's just going to mm-hmm. be the guy that's going to come in and kill people. It's not the case. Like he has more dimensionality to him as a director and the okay. stories that he chooses. And American Sniper is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I completely agree. Good call. Your pick. Oh yeah. Uh, this one is uh 1990. So it's the end of the eighties. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, uh, this is right. Uh, looking at the filmography, he did this movie called white hunter Blackheart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did this movie called the rookie. And then he did unforgiven and kind of the rest is history in terms right. of him stepping up a different stage. But White Hunter Blackheart was really this fascinating old Hollywood tale um, um, where basically it's sort of loosely, but probably based on John Huston and mm-hmm. the filming the of queen, the African right? queen. Yeah. Because it's about like this director. I'm trying to remember what his name was in the movie. I yeah, can't a a slightly it. thin, I don't want to say a thinly veiled character name, but yeah, I mean, John Wilson. John there. Wilson yeah. is the name of the director. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> but but it's uh, but yeah, it's it's basically about like this big time director that's trying to film this thing. He's trying to do an art piece, and everyone's trying to corral him in, and he's dealing with the budget stuff and the studios trying to corral him, and you know, it's a lot of Hollywood stuff. But then he gets on this like um, uh, bent while he's there mm-hmm. about killing an elephant and it just becomes yeah. like his primary obsession to the point where he can't do anything else but go out on these hunts and uh but it's like a lot of eastwood stories uh where you think it's going one way it's it's quite the other it's it's almost like this guy has not a death wish but mm. this need to do something unforgivable to experience life a different way and it's it's yeah. really it's it's really compelling stuff plus um and this may come up again i also think it's one of the best acting performances because it is very much not glenn eastwood it's it's very much him playing kind of a more uh verbose upper class you know intellectual type uh who also gets his ass kicked a lot in the movie thinking mm-hmm. he's this tough guy and yeah. he's not it's really interesting role for him to play uh but also just a really interesting movie because i think you know right before unforgiven like he kind of already did play with this whole idea of like what do you do when you become when you become known for your vices it's just fascinating mm. phil- like yeah. psychological film and a great acting in it and great scenery is filmed in africa it's just a great great little movie i think people should check out no that's that's a rare one i haven't seen that one since college and uh, i remember like jeff fahey's in there i think is that's he supposed is. to be a launching pad for him and i know between that lawnmower man it was supposed to be the the era of fahey but it never <laughs> turned out so no yeah. um that, that's a darn good pick um and i love your sentiments there were just uh you know when clint wants to he, he can do something other than just play clint i think a lot of times we see those we'll probably talk about this when we get to the acting section of, of, of this where um you know by the time we get to grand torino we're like are we just watching clint are we just are we watching you know, a character you know so i yeah, i can appreciate that um my last pick um being a night being a 90s you know era guy where that was my wheelhouse for movies and i was just listening to um 
some podcast somewhere. I'm not going to give them credit. Um, <laughs> they don't need it. Uh, that we were, they were, someone was talking about um, movie presidents. I think it was a podcast about the American president, um, that Michael mm. Douglas, and like they were kind of yeah, good one. They were yeah. trying to do um, like we kind of a Mount Rushmore of movie presidents and things like that. And uh, I, it was it wouldn't make a Mount Rushmore of movie presidents, but I just really admire just like um, the different angle they went with it is uh, absolute power. Ah um, yes, I, yes. I dig, I dig absolute power just because. Um, for Clint, um, it's a nice, it's a, it kind of a character of gray. You know, I mean, let's be honest, he's a thief, he's a burglar, and things mm-hmm. like that. But he's obviously made to be, you know, an artfully minded, well, you know, reasonably nice guy as a cat burglar. Mm-hmm. When you know, how often do we get that nowadays? But then, um, to reteam with Hackman being an absolutely reprehensible monster of a person who just happens to be <laughs> the president was, um. Yeah. Like to to channel that now, you know, in our post Trumpian times, I'd be like, ooh, <laughs> talk about a movie that would be that would be played and 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 land far differently today than it would then. Because then, like when you uh, that first, of course, that first scene where you know he's caught behind the mirror door and you realize, oh great, that's a chair that things get watched and done at a little bit. Um, when 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 you realize oh crap that's the president it's a it's a jaw dropper moment of a of a thing I think the trailers kind of tip it off a little bit but like in scene it, it's completely thrilling and um mm-hmm. yeah a, a movie you could not I can say it like that a movie you could not make today the same way that I super duper appreciate because I'm edge of my seat wondering where it's going I I, I obviously I'm not thinking it's going to be crazy you know it's not gonna turn into speed three or anything like that <laughs> but uh but um but laura laney does a nice performance kind of trying to you know rank you know tie down eastwood as kind of the daughter character but um just to get just to have hackman relish in the role he is and to see eastwood play an artful an artful thief is you know pre pre oceans 11 was was fine so i nice a nice movie again i just like it because uh more more often than not the the presidential shadows we live in today that you cannot make that movie without it being cheeto colored today so yeah <laughs> cheeto colored exactly no i totally agree with you on that one uh, i love absolute power it's a great a great little movie in that 90s era mm-hmm. i always remember uh saturday night live uh I, I don't know well this would have been i think post phil hartman being killed yeah, so i think so. might have been da- might have been daryl hammond playing bill clinton but mm-hmm. either way it was bill clinton on snl and uh, he was doing movie reviews and he was like so it's a movie about <laughs> you know mm-hmm. a president killing his mistress what's wrong with that great movie <laughs> best yeah. movie of the year like it was yeah that's good great. i always remember that about absolute power but anyway um all right I think i'm gonna final, final pick right a yeah five? final pick for me uh, Ooh. I, I got a is, i got an yeah. honorable mention before we close and we're done and it's not Absolutely. a directing thing but a filmmaking thing okay yeah. all right uh why don't you uh, you want to do it now or you want me to pick uh, first uh, yeah, I tell you what, I'll close my spot with that. Um, so uh, over the years, I think I complimented him earlier. Lenny Nihas did a lot of uh, Eastwood's music and was known for just that that soulful, wonderful. Uh, I don't want to even call it folksy, just nice piano. Um, obviously, his Claudius theme and Unforgiven is the thing that you know mm. kind of propelled Lenny to do a lot of things, and he just kind of stayed with Eastwood. But after the, um, a lot of years, Eastwood would do his own music in many of his movies, where Eastwood's no slouch about sitting down the piano and making fantastic pieces. Um, mm-hmm. The one film he ever scored that was not one of his own, I wanted to give props to, and his grace is gone from 2007. It's the best thing I've ever seen mm. John Cusack do. Um, he plays the uh, just a, a quick little note for the folks because this every time I bring this movie up, no one knows it. Um, so John Cusack plays the husband of a Gulf War soldier 
um, because his wife is the one overseas doing the fighting and things like that. Um, He gets word that um, she was KIA and he, they have two daughters and um, he's in like, um, he in, in, um, he as a husband at home is obviously trying to be the breadwinner and take care of things that way. He goes to like, you know, um, the soldiers kind of soldiers, you know, soldier spouses support group. And he's the only guy, you know, cause how often is it always women? Um, but he has no clue how to tell his two young daughters that mom's not coming home. Um, he decides to kind of cook up this trip to like road trip, the kids from like Chicago to Florida, to like to go essentially to like the beach or Disney world, or at least a smaller version of it. And, and he's just trying to find the right time, trying to find the right place to just be like, Hey, mom's not coming home. And it's a crusher of a, of mm-hmm. a movie in terms of that kind of news. And for me, best thing John Cusack's ever done and the score from Eastwood. I remember hearing the story where one is a beautiful score, his kind of, you know, signature piano kind of thing, but also just, um, yeah, it was something he read and appreciated where he's like, yeah, I'll do that score. And they were just astounded. They got Eastwood to just wow. do a score, not direct it, not start it, not take anything over, but like, yeah, I'll do your music. And I, I just amazed that Clint at that stage in 07 mm-hmm. being as made man as he is three years mm-hmm. after bringing down the baby doing that. I was just tip my hat. Grace is gone right there from Eastwood. Wow. Gonna have to. I've never seen that. I'll have to give that a whirl. Oh, get your tissue boxes ready. It's a hard one, man. <laughs> um, all right. Let me go with my last pick. Um, another music inspired one um, with Eastwood. Uh, it's called Honky Tonk Man, 1982. I have uh, not pro- seen this one. Yeah. But yes. I saw your post of it earlier today, I believe, right? Yep, yep. I, I kind of did go. the musical double, and uh, they both impressed me greatly. Honky Tonk Man, super, super low budget for him, even for Eastwood. Um, and definitely a passion project. Um, this is why I picked Bird and I picked Honky Tonk Man, because um, if there are two musical genres I know virtually nothing about the history of, and I know and have very little interest in, it's jazz and country like old school country like you know yeah. from the 20s and 30s you know not to say when, that, you, when you say yeah. like that damien chazelle yeah. is going to hear you and make a fucking honky-tonk country movie I, it's going <laughs> to happen now he heard well, you i mean yeah that's well that's wonderful but uh, hopefully <laughs> there'll be elephants shitting on people that'd be awesome no, um oh but no gosh, um but no i it and it's not to say that that music is not good because i'm not a gatekeeper i'm not saying anything's bad i just it's just stuff that in general doesn't you know get me going or anything but both of those movies really (laughs) engaged me on a musical level because i was like wow i'm really seeing stuff about this genre of music i never thought of before um and honky tonk man essentially is about this drunk you know backwoods country singer who uh played by clint eastwood who finally gets his chance to try out for the grand old opry uh, you know, the only problem is, is that, you know, he's got no money. It's the Great Depression and uh, he's uh, got tuberculosis and he can't sing anymore. And uh, just life is falling apart for him right when it could be at its peak. And um, it, it has it's a road trip movie. It has its little misadventures along the way. There's a lot of comedies, a lot of drama. It's a really sad movie, too, just in terms of the characters living these really sad lives. Um but yeah, there's a, there's kind of a sequence towards the end where, you know, he's got to get these recordings in before he literally dies. And it's like the tension of it is so profound and engaging that you're, 
you know, you're gripping your seat. And and if the last thing you told me, or if you told me that I was going to watch a Great Depression road trip movie about the Grand Old Opry, and by the end of it, I'd be clutching my seat with tension, mm-hmm. I would have laughed at you. But it's it's a it's a very 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 art piece kind of film uh, from him, and uh, I really loved it, and I uh, highly recommend that one too. Good call. Yeah, I mean. The guy, and we're just talking about deep cuts. I mean, we could do a whole show on the million dollar babies, the letters to Iwo Jima, the Unforgivens. They're just the, the man's the man. I mean, he's. I, I mean, I know a lot of people like to make their their uh, Mount Rushmores and, and try to do top four. He'll. I don't think he'll ever be top four, but the dude is top ten. In my yeah, opinion, I mean, you, you don't you don't walk with the number sure? of Oscars he does. You don't do the amount of films he does in different genres with this much success without being that guy. Yeah. Well, and and if I if I'm going to do an honorable mention, uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. go with uh, Richard Jewell, which is the second okay. penultimate at this point yeah. film that he directed. I mean, he did it at 90 years old or 89 years old, still pumping out compelling, interesting stories. I mean, not there, it's not wasn't an earth shattering movie or anything, but I just remember sitting down in the theater watching it and just being kind of impressed with how effective that art really has no age really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, God, this guy's 90 and he's pumping out a movie like this, you know, that, that had like a lot of great tension and great acting. And uh, so I'm not saying go out and watch Richard Jewell right away, but I, it just, it just shows you that he can make great movies in the seventies as a director. And he can make great movies in the 2010s as a mm-hmm. director. That's, that's kind of how talented he really is. Good stuff, man. Well, this is good. We get to do it all over again with him as an actor next, huh? Indeed, indeed. So before we close up, I want you to follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit, on Facebook at Cinephile His Fit Podcast, and on Instagram at Cinephile Fits. You can find both of us by name on Letterboxd. Check out our film reviews and ratings. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, and we are charter members of Independent Film Critics of America. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership and our tussles and for connecting with us on social media. Cinephile Hazy Fit is a Ruminations Radio Network podcast sponsored by Film Obsessive and 25 Wild Media. If you enjoyed this show, the Ruminations Radio Network has more excellent programming with stellar hosts and spirited topics. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show and others on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 